Me and Chandi are both really big on coffee. She has her pour-over thingy, and I have an espresso machine. But I also am really, really into tea. Like, I love tea. If you are also into tea, you need to check out Sip Tea Shop. Drinking tea can be a full mind, body, and spiritual experience that surely helps me unwind after a long, stressful day. With a variety of different herbal notes and flavors, Sip Tea Shop has a tea for everyone. For instance, take my personal favorite, the Unwind, which has chamomile, lavender, and has a great aroma of fresh roses. It really helps you to relax at the end of a long day. To find out more about their great collection of teas, go to thesipteashop.com. That's T-H-E-S-I-P-T-E-A-S-H-O-P.com. Also check out their Instagram at instagram.com slash sip underscore tea shop. That's S-I-P underscore T-E-A-S-H-O-P. Everyone, well, almost everyone, loves the beach. The chill of the waves enveloping your feet as you step from the hot, stinging, dry sand to the cool, wet sand where the ocean waves crash and fizzle out. The aroma of salted seawater that you can just about taste. Giant beach towels and umbrellas create pathways along the sandy beach. Now imagine being restricted to one segregated section of a beach at a resort town at the Jersey Shore. Imagine not being allowed to walk the length of the boardwalk and only being allowed to exist on the north side of the city. This is the story of Chicken Bone Beach. Chicken Bone Beach was a racially segregated beach from 1900 and up until 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Back then, this beachside section of Atlantic City was a haven for Black Americans, as well as a major source of the entertainment industry, bringing together jazz musicians and celebrities from all over to perform in Atlantic City. Today on the podcast, we have Cheryl Woodruff Brooks, one of the few people who's written about Chicken Bone Beach. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about yourself? I've pretty much been writing my entire life. I think I just strayed away from my calling, if you will. I received essay scholarships to undergraduate, but I majored in business. <laughs> but I went to school and picked journalism as my major. See the confusion at 18. 
I decided to get my master's of arts in American study because I could do it for free at my job. I thought, what the heck, get another degree. And uh, along that way, I stumbled upon some images which kind of inspired my whole thesis. My thesis got turned into a book and uh, the rest is history. I've just been writing ever since. My focus is on segregated beaches. Uh, my first book, Chicken Bone Beach, was nominated for a few different awards. I now am up to five books. My most recent is my own self-published and first self-published book, which is a children's book, which is very much inspired by my favorite children's author, Dr. Seuss. So it's rhymey. And because I have a songwriting background as well, it's easy for me to write rhyming books. Yeah, this, it's been a great journey of writing that's turned into lots of speaking engagements and just really interesting adventures in my uh, journey as a, what I call myself, literary mermaid. That's great. Your children's book has to do with mermaids, right? It has to do with believing in your dreams, believing in yourself. And I use illustrations are myrrh boys and girls with a look and feel that is inclusive of all types of people. So let's talk about Chicken Bone Beach. How did you first hear about it? So I believe it was the summer of 2014 and I was hanging out with a girlfriend of mine. And at that time, I was actually working on my master's. Uh, we passed art gallery called Art Sanctuary. And they had these images in the window of African-Americans for the most part on a beach somewhere, happy and smiling. And it caught my attention because usually when I see vintage images of people of color, they're not looking happy. <laughs> so we went inside, stared at all of the pictures. Of course, I read all the little plaques up under them. I ended up having a conversation with the person working there asking about where the pictures came from. I bought a few postcards and left. And then that fall, I returned back to class. And one of my professors was telling the class, you know, this year's Eastern American Studies Conference is going to be in New Jersey. I believe he said it's going to be at Rowan University. And they're looking for calls for papers on New Jersey history. Well, right away, the light bulb went off. I can participate in this. And this will give me an excuse to like find out what the story is behind these beautiful people in these pictures. And so I reached out to Temple University, specifically the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Library within Temple University, who houses a tremendous beautiful, enriched collection of African-American artifacts and history. Thanks to Charles Bloxon. And I just want to say, God rest his soul. I did not get to meet him. And he passed about two weeks ago. So I presented the paper and uh, my professor was pretty intrigued by it and said, this should be your thesis. You know, I had already told him, no, I'm doing it on hip hop history. That's what I'm doing it on. It's like, no, this, you should do it on this. So yeah, I did. That's how the whole thing got started. I looked for a museum to curate the images. They said I could curate my own exhibit. I said, I, well, that's better than just writing a paper. So unbeknownst to me at the time, the gallery owner also had a publishing company in Pennsylvania in the nonfiction arena and offered me a book deal. That's really cool. That's amazing. What is, or also what was, what is and was Chicken Bone Beach? 
It's a nickname based on, of course, historical folklore that that name came about. But the actual beach uh, was established as Missouri Avenue Beach. You can go to Chicken Bone Beach today. And if you've been to Atlantic City and were at Missouri Avenue Beach, you were at Chicken Bone Beach. They, since I've written the book, they have now installed a historical marker. And it is one of John W. Mosley's pictures, the person who I borrowed most of the photographs for the book. It goes back to, oh goodness, slavery. So according to my research, a slave owner, a Dutch slave owner by the name of James Soma gave a group of his women slaves their freedom if they would put down pebbles and build a path so he could go from his little town, which was kind of adjacent to Atlantic City, and get to this Atlantic City. If these African-American slave women completed their task, they were free once they got there. They didn't have jobs, they didn't have money, but they had their freedom and ain't nothing like freedom, people. That, as far as we know, began the history of Blacks into Atlantic City. I say that to point out that Blacks have always been in Atlantic City since the beginning of Atlantic City. Atlantic City at that time was known as Apsecon. It was named by an Indian tribe, the Place of Swans. And so Blacks have been a part of Atlantic City since Atlantic City was created. They ended up settling for the most part on the north side of town. And as it turns out, Missouri Avenue was the beach closest to where all the Black people lived. So they were already inhabiting and utilizing Missouri Avenue Beach before they were enforced to do so. So it was already their beach. I like that. That is part of the history. They began to establish businesses and churches. And before they built churches, they often would meet to fellowship at Chicken Bone Beach because they they were just in someone's house having church and then they would go down there. So it was their beach. It was their beach first. Could you kind of walk us through the timeline of Black people in Atlantic City and also just segregation in Atlantic City? So, you know, the interesting about Atlantic City and the North in particular in America during these times of, I would say, from post-slavery, Northern Americans, they weren't really down for slavery like the South. And I think it made more sense because they had a different way of acquiring economic wealth than the South. The South needed sharecroppers. So I just think they viewed African-Americans a little differently. So I say all that to say that at one point, Blacks and white were co-mingling, sharing, living at the same places. They were very desegregated. and then over time separated themselves due to Jim Crow laws. And then in the early 1900s, Atlantic City was looking for a way to establish an economy within Atlantic City. And a doctor got the idea of getting investors to help him build a railroad that would run from the south to the north so that they could become this resort town. And that's when things started to change. The migration and the ability of Southerners, well-to-do white Southerners in particular, particularly that ability to travel now to the North after they were in an environment where Blacks were not socializing and co-mingling so much. 
So a lot of people, both black and white, in particular, probably more European immigrants, along with Blacks who were no longer slaves, they migrated to New Jersey because there was money to be made. They were building railroads. They were building these huge hotels down across the shore, just building Atlantic City into this fabulous resort town. And so that work, the ability to find work outside of sharecropping or, and this was tough work too, laying bricks and, you know, train track. But that's what really drew a lot of Blacks to Atlantic City. And also the train station started hiring folks to, you know, work the trains. I forgot what all of their, what they were called, run the trains and let people in. I interviewed a woman whose dad discovered Chicken Bone Beach because he worked on the railroad. And they would hop off. He might have to spend the night. And he thought, wow, there's this community of Black people and they're doing pretty good and they're self-sufficient. And so that also drew Blacks. Other Blacks started to hear about this Black community where it was safe to stay during times like when the Green Book was out. So we're talking early 1900s. So then uh, we start to move towards the 1920s. And that's when more Blacks in Atlantic City on the north side said, due to Jim Crow laws, we, we can't utilize the bank on the south side. We can't utilize any of the amenities outside of our, our neighborhood. So they began to collaborate as a community on how they could establish all these different type of businesses that they needed anyway. By the 1940s, African-Americans living in Atlantic City owned roughly about 235 Black-owned businesses, credit unions, taxi services, bed and breakfasts, restaurants, of course, drugstores. I love the stories of how they worked together to acquire economic wealth, doing exactly what white Atlantic City was doing at that time, but doing it for people of color. So by the 1940s, you know, Blacks are listing their businesses in the Green Book, all the surrounding States are hearing about this Black beach that's safe to go and safe to stay. And so then you, you're getting this migration of socialization going on for a recreational purposes, New York and Virginia and Pennsylvania. So I heard lots of stories about how every weekend parents were taking their kids to Atlantic City. And the people I talked to, they weren't even referring to Chicken Bone Beach as Chicken Bone Beach. They were like, when we were a kid, my parents used to take us there. That's sort of the trail. It, it started with, you know, post-slavery and economic development of railroads and tourism and job development. And then, of course, you know, and this kind of happened all over America as soon as the Civil Rights Act was passed. Black said, OK, we're out of here. We can go somewhere else and rent, honey, and not have to have, you know, grandma and the kids all sleeping in one bedroom. And so Blacks begin to disperse from communities that may have, have been forced to be a part of and begin to migrate out. And so that's what happened in Atlantic City, which affected them economically, as well as the emerging development of other recreational choices in America. Then you started to have a there wasn't a Vegas Strip yet. 
you know, there wasn't a Bourbon Street in New Orleans yet when when Atlantic City was booming in their heyday. There wasn't there what there weren't Disney. There wasn't a Disneyland or a Disney World yet. But those things were developing in the backdrops. And so the other piece that hurt Atlantic City's economy was competition in recreational services in America. So they start they thought they got the idea of building casinos, which in many ways made it less family friendly and the casinos, they didn't live up to what Atlantic City was going for. But Blacks were very well established in Atlantic City in their own little bubble, so to speak, by the mid-1940s. It seems like Atlantic City um, was kind of culturally significant in the way that Harlem was. And then, you know, even kind of reminiscent of Chicago. Um, I don't know if you could speak to that. Absolutely. Atlantic City was a gangster town, a party Play. It was no different than Bourbon Street, New Orleans, and it was no different than Chicago mobsters and gangsters. I mean, we got people partying and gambling and we've got prohibition, all of that taking place. And African-Americans too, as well, in particular in the entertainment industry, sought out places like Atlantic City and Harlem in the 1940s, especially looking for work as entertainers, as musicians. And so Atlantic City was just as popular as Harlem was during the jazz era. And you'll find many locations across America where that was the case. Folks went where they can make make some money. But if you've ever seen, and I would encourage anyone listening, you you might want to go back and watch HBO's uh, miniseries uh, Boardwalk Empire, which very much addresses what party town mobster gangster Atlantic City was like back in that day. That a lot of people just didn't hear those great stories. But as I did the research, um, I, did, I, I did a lot of dead bodies in that ocean. <laughs> you know, there there's a lot of rough and tough and stuff going on. I I, I research. I found mugshots of not just white men, but white women, too, that were part of, you know, many corrupt groups. It was that kind of place. I love the history of Atlantic City, the good, the bad and the ugly. It's it's the American dream. You touched upon this about segregation in Atlantic City and the South, but how different was segregation in Atlantic City different than the Jim Crow laws in the South? Atlantic City had its share of racism. People that I took oral histories from did not sugarcoat that at all. I just think there was a more subtle approach, a more passive, indirect approach to it. Kind of like culturally, African-Americans just begin to quote unquote, know their place. They knew where, where not to go. They knew where they weren't allowed. And so when I interviewed people, they would tell me things that would happen in Atlantic City. You you may be approached by a cop on the boardwalk that just tells you, you know, you can't be in this area. Where in the South, they blatantly put up a sign that said, no color tier, or you can't use this water fountain. Where in the North, they weren't as overt, but it was more of a subtle passive approach as seen in Atlantic City. And there were just, you know, I heard things like, one a scenario of segregation, there were movie theaters and there were, Blacks could only sit like upstairs 
they could go to the same movie theater as the whites, but they had to sit in a different section. With Chicken Bone Beach, once they got those railroads going and the beautiful hotels going and the word getting out by way of the railroad system that there's this city in the north that, oh, it's so much fun, it's beautiful, blah, blah, blah. So white Southerners started coming to Atlantic City. And when they noticed that people of color were on the beaches outside of the hotels, they spoke to the owners and said, hey, we are not going to stay at your hotels if people of color are also going to be here enjoying the same space with us, okay? So letters were written to the Black churches in Atlantic City telling them that they needed to recreate at Missouri Avenue Beach. You know, the one right near your neighborhood, that's the only one you're allowed to go to. And if you use the other beaches, you'll lose your jobs at the hotels. Have a nice day. So that was probably the biggest thing I was told. They were just told that due to the fact that they didn't want to lose the money of white tourists. So that's what I mean about how how subtle and how different the North may have been from the South where, you know, you, you didn't you didn't even get a warning like that in the South. So Atlantic City had to cooperate, whether they agreed or not, with what was going on in the rest of America if they wanted to make money. And so that, I think, was um, the effect of segregation and Jim Crow laws and maybe a lot of northern states that we don't really want to do this. But heck, we got to do this, you know, because we're just one little city in in big old America and the majority of it, they're not ready to be one, be considered one society yet. So th- there were events like that. Another thing that was really obvious when I did my research as well is that Atlantic City has a great history of lifeguards and Many of the terms coined today were created by the lifeguards in Atlantic City. And Atlantic City had black lifeguards all the way back to like 19, early, like 1919, right? And they had black lifeguards working all the beaches. Well, because of the Jim Crow laws, they made all the black lifeguards stop working at all the beaches and only save lives at Chicken Bone Beach. How crazy is that? But yep, they said, well, can't work these. Those are the kind of effects that Jim Crow laws, that's what happened. Those were the results of things that happened in Atlantic City. They were desegregated and they segregated where places in the South, you're not hearing that story. They were always segregated and fought like hell to stay that way. I read in your book where the Claridge Hotel is, I guess that was um, sort of like that edge where I think that's kind of where that's close to Missouri Avenue. Like I think there's a mall there right now. I think that's kind of like the, like in my mind, that's the marker for like where right. um, where that area is. And like it, it just kind of makes it real for me because like um, as a kid, when we would like my family would go to Atlantic City, we'd always tend to stay at like the Claridge Hotel. And like just thinking the the idea that people stayed at the Claridge and we're like, well, you know, we don't really want to see black people on the beach in front of the hotel and in front of the resort, like go over there. Yeah, it just kind of makes it more real for me, which is just, I don't know. It's like unsettling and scary, just kind of awkward feelings. Especially for our generation. We have a hard time processing a country like America that these things were taking place because we were born free. And uh, it was physically obvious that there was a difference in Atlantic City. I try to point that out in the book as well by showing what the North Side looked like. If you're on the South Side, 
The streets have been paved. You know, you had asphalt on the street. You had some place to play. For so many years, the North Side, when I say North Side, that's where Blacks live. They didn't even pave the streets. I mean, you left your apartment and you, you know, it was gravel. There were no parks for kids to play in. There were no kind of accommodations like that. And Blacks mostly, they built up the businesses they needed. And they had a lot of very beautiful churches, which they did not do any, take any action to preserve. It was really sad doing the research and seeing these absolutely gorgeous churches that were once erected in Atlantic City that are completely gone because no one preserved them. And this is the same across America. The the church was such a great institution for African-Americans in so many ways. It was where you understood politics. It made up for a lot of what was missing in society for Blacks at that time, too. But it was very apparent in Atlantic City. And there were railroad tracks separating the South Side from the North Side. You could see how very developed, more houses on one side, you know, no street paving, no... Yeah. So there are a lot of things about it. And yet that was better than most cities in America's for Blacks. And that's what interests me, too. I interviewed Nelson Johnson, who was once a judge. I think he's retired now, but he was a judge in Atlantic City. He grew up in Atlantic City. He wrote a book called The North Side. I said, how were Blacks able to establish so many businesses and no one forced them to shut them down or prohibit them from having a particular license or registration. Because you hear about so many, especially in beach area, you, you hear about Blacks trying to build beach houses and they got burned down or they just, they wouldn't permit them to have the permits. So, so how did Atlantic, what was the difference with Atlantic City? And Nelson Johnson said, they weren't thinking Black and white. They were thinking green. They were thinking about having a city that was making money and they were a tourist town. They did not want the Blacks to completely fail uh, because it kind of would be like, you know, thorn on the city. So they said, hey, we're not going to we're not going to help you economically, but we're not going to stop you from trying to take care of yourselves. What was so wrong with that? Why couldn't every city have allowed that? And so I guess this brings me to my next question, which is about the entertainment industry in Atlantic City. Because I know that, you know, there are a lot of musicians, jazz is an important part of it, and also just the celebrities that also came through. Oh, yeah. Um, I interviewed so many people and I watched their faces light up, recalled, you know, being on the beach and running into Sammy Davis or Muhammad Ali or so Black Atlantic City was its own little Hollywood uh, on the east side. And that's the sense I got from people I interviewed. And they're very uh, historical Blacks, Blacks that were around during that period that are still living, Blacks who were children who heard these stories, you just see on their face as they talk about Atlantic City. And being in the entertainment industry was as desirable as it was to be a doctor or a lawyer. I talked to a lady who snuck an audition to be a showgirl against her dad's will. You know, just to show you that young women, you know, I want to be a showgirl when I grow up. I love that. I love that they saw things that way. They they saw being an entertainer or something just as rewarding and fulfilling as anything else they would have done. With Blacks having so few choices as entertainers to work, 
of course, a place like Atlantic City, who provides this huge audience, is a perfect place. So lots of people got their start in their music careers in Atlantic City. For example, like a Nina Simone started there. And then there are other people who became famous today because of Atlantic City, like a Sammy Davis Jr. People love Sammy Davis Jr. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. And it show you how popular entertainment was back, you know, in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. Sammy Davis Jr. would do five shows a day, especially, yes, on a weekend. This is how party people there was a breakfast show. There was a lunch show. There was a brunch show. There was a dinner show. There was a, you know, there was a 10 o'clock. There was a late night, you know, starting with breakfast. You got vintage Sammy jazz in the morning. So what a time in America. <laughs> yes. You know, we loved entertainment so much. And, you know, in Atlantic City, they built that city based on being able to do great entertainment. They built buildings that was, it was just a dance hall. That's it. And people got dressed up and really cute and they went out dancing, really dancing the night away, you know? So yeah, it was that type of crowd. And then jazz came on the scene, late 30s, early 40s. And just like hip hop, it broke the color lines. And white folks said, ah, we don't care about this racism. We care about that good music we hear on Kentucky Avenue and the good food we've been hearing about. And we're going over there. You see pictures historically of people of every race, creed, and color lined up down Kentucky Avenue and around the corner just to get in to hear a show, to hear live entertainment, musicians, and uh, people like Duke Ellington. And you can just pretty much go down the list. And it went on. I mean, even when R&B started to kind of take the forefront, there were still lots of shows and lots of entertainment going on in Atlantic City. But yeah, if you were a musician and you lived on the East Coast, you could find plenty of work in 125th in Harlem, but you could find just as much work and great entertainment on Kentucky Avenue in Atlantic City. Such a happening place. Yeah. It was. It was. Let's talk about John W. Mosley. What do we know about him? Or what do you know about him? He's a professional photographer who seemed to have made his mission, whether he indirectly intended to do it or not, to historicalize African-American history by way of images. And thank God for him. We as a race, in so many ways, our, our stories weren't getting out there. Our books weren't being put in libraries and kids weren't hearing about historically what the African-American population was doing to add value to this country. So thank God for people who took thousands of photos. That's what John W. Mosley did. So if you are a researcher and um, you were to visit Temple University, you would find that they have thousands, thousands of John W. Mosley's pictures because not only did he go back and forth to Chicken Bone Beach for 30 years, 30 years taking pictures, he also made it a point to attend other African-American civic events. He made it a point to attend um, sporting events. And he and Charles L. Bloxham became friends as 
they were close to the same age and they shared the same passion, the desire to archive African-Americans' contribution to America because so few people did it, took an interest in it, published anything about it. And when John W. Mosley passed, his family donated his entire collection to Charles Bloxon's library. And I know specifically as far as Chicken Bone Beach, John W. Mosley ended up with so many pictures because we lived in a time where you know, we didn't have instant cameras yet. Uh, but yeah, I love in some of the pictures I looked at John W. Mosley's uh, shadow casted on the sand and you can see it holding like that big light taking pictures. I, I just love looking back on that. But he would go back to Philadelphia to develop the pictures and then drive back to Atlantic City, you know, hopefully maybe he took phone numbers. I don't know. Looking for those people so he could sell pictures to them. But of course, you know, he probably had lots of pictures that he did not run into those tourists again. And so they just became archived. And so that's how he built up having so many images of Chicken Bone Beach, because back and forth to develop, go back, find the people, sell the pictures to them, go back. And this just went on and on. But John W. Mosley also had many of his images in early African-American newspapers around the country, as well as magazines. And in particular, I highlight some of his pictures of women on beaches from uh, New York and Pennsylvania, maybe New Jersey as well, um, in a magazine called Color. It was mirrored off of Life magazine, which I'm sure many Americans have heard of Life magazine. And they had John W. Mosley shoot like a four-part series of beautiful women on the beach. You know, so he he was a, a bit famous. And in his own way, we are indebted to people like himself uh, who took it upon himself to become a historian through pictures of the great, wonderful America. So you came about doing this as part of your thesis, right? So what was your research process like in terms of obtaining the oral histories? It was a learn as you go for me. I mean, even though I was studying American studies, but I was also studying museum studies. So I was just taking what I was learning and putting it in action and really kind of feeling my way, which I am so appreciative of because it was my it was the orientation to the development of the research process that I still use all the time for everything I research. And uh, I've even given workshops about re researching nonfiction now because I get asked this question. For anybody interested in writing nonfiction, put yourself in the mindset of somebody that's just looking for their family history. You know, you want to find out who your great, 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 great grandfather was and you start digging around in genealogy type stuff and ancestry, that kind of thing. But for me, it started with, I said, first, let me go look at the picture. Set up an appointment. I called Temple. I got the archivist on the phone. I told him I was a grad student. I wanted to look at the images in the hope of, you know, telling story. So I made the appointment, traveled back and forth to Temple. I don't know. I lost count. And just, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. I said, you know what? I'm going to start looking at pictures. So I took notes as I looked at pictures. And I went back and looked at those notes and I looked for 
commonalities amongst what I wrote down. I just kind of looked at what, what did you look at and what did you find? So I let, I let my observations of the images, they actually guided the whole process. I said, okay, we're going to break this down. We're looking, we're going to look at families. Maybe we're going to look at, you know, I started just families, churches, businesses, entertainment. I just started to categorize pictures and mark down pictures that just kind of stuck out at me like whammo, like, oh, the world needs to see this picture. This is too cool. I, I wanted all the pictures, you know. I only end up using about, I don't know if you look at the book, 20 something, but so that's how it started. And I'm and I'm constantly looking for name. Oh, John, did you write down a name of anybody, anything? Help me, help me from the grave. <laughs> There weren't that he didn't write, you know, his job was not what my job was. He's a photographer. So he's just taking pictures. So it was up to me to figure out how I would get more information about the pictures. So I had to figure out what the pictures were of, what time frame the pictures were taken, um, and who were those people, you know, what was going on. And one of the archivists shared with me the name of one person, Henrietta Shelton. Henrietta Shelton loved the beach so much that she decided to start a nonprofit called Chicken Bone Beach Historical Foundation. And her mission, unlike what I was doing, she she did want to keep the history of Chicken Bone Beach alive, but she in particular had a passion for the entertainment aspect and piece of it. So her nonprofit involved uh, giving jazz shows in the summer, having kind of a, j- a summer series jazz festival, and continuing the era of jazz music by offering instrument lessons to children in Atlantic City for free. Got in touch with her, and I got in touch with Ralph Hunter, who started the African American Museum in Atlantic City. And then the names came. Oh, and then then I also um, went to Atlantic City's Free Public Library for additional pictures and information. So I went from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, looked at what they had, I started attending events in Atlantic City so that I would have more conversations with people. And then it started to get around. There's this girl here, she's writing a book about us. And that that felt really special to, you know, so people were happy to talk to me because in their mind, she's about to make us famous. You know, of course, I want to write something that everyone reads. So people were happy to talk to me and talking to more people got me more names, got me more. Oh, you ought to go talk to this person. You ought to go to this event. And so it just kept going. The more the more people I talked to, the more history I got, the more names I got, the more contacts I got, the more events I got and just went on for a few years until I finished the book. That's amazing. Were you ever able to like really, because I know I see in some of the photos in the book, um, you know, it has the names of who's who's in the actual photo. Were you ever able to really like with the people who are still around who, you know, went to Chicken Bone Beach or, you know, around at that time, like, were they ever able to like pick out like from photos like, oh, that's like, that's my aunt. That's my cousin. That- yeah. You know, I was talking to the archivist at Temple University and she was saying, you know, if this all goes well, you're going to hear from people that will identify people for you because that's happened to us just from exhibiting the pictures. Someone will say, oh my goodness, that's my granddad or that I know that person, blah, blah, blah. And that's, 
that happened. So when the book was published, I knew less of the people in the pictures. It was the putting the book out there that I began to get more names. And then I, of course, as a study of, of museum studies, I, I felt it, I, it was my right. I was indebted to make sure those names were documented. So just what Temple said did happen. And I made sure Temple got those names. Names came to me by way of social media and names came to me by way of doing events. So people started hearing about, you know, I was having a book discussion in Philadelphia and they didn't intentionally come because they wanted me to know that's my mother on page 55 and her name is blah, blah, blah. Or they bring a picture and say, so they could prove to me, this is my mom and she's in your book. The word kind of got out there. And so people start reaching out to me. I, I didn't know anybody on the cover of my book. I still don't know the men, people, anybody know anything. But I now know who all the women are because their children reached out to me on Facebook and said, that's my mom in that picture. One time I had someone claiming one person to be related to both of them. I'm like, nah, this is this can't be true. Can't be both of your mommies. But yeah, they said, that's my mom in that picture. And how'd you get her picture? Yeah. So I now know all the women on the cover um, and I still don't know the men. So yeah, getting it out there. I mean, a lot of those images, since I wrote the book, they've gotten very popular as well as Temple has acquired funding. They're attempting as most museums and libraries should be. They should be Asking the government for money to digitize everything they have, because that's where we're going, people. So if you're a library museum and you're not asking someone for some funding to help you move into the next era of how people are archiving knowledge, then you should be. Um, so uh, most of Temple's University's pictures are going to be digitized anyway. Wow. That's amazing. Like, I, I feel like I'm going to just go see my aunts or whatever, and, or cousins, or like, and just like, hey, like, can you just look through this if you know anybody? It's wonderful. I love, I think that, you know, sometimes as we, not even sometimes, it's just like my own kid, you know, now that he's older, he thinks, oh, mom, you're so old, you know, like you're a fuddy-duddy and you don't know anything and you're so unhip. <laughs> and I think we all kind of think that about people, right? But I just, I got that, I got such a kick out of talking to people that are like 70 years old and 80 years old. And then they just break out and say, this is me. And girlfriend's got on a two-piece bikini and she's mm -hmm. hot on the picture and she's telling me how she used to dance the night away and party and talk to your people, talk to your yeah. grandpa. They, they were once fly like oh. you are today. <laughs> oh, I've had some conversations with my grandmother. Has All my grandparents have passed away, but my grandmother, who was the last grandparent I had to pass away, she died at um, 108. And um, she was born in 1907. So she moved up to New York City when she was like in, you know, late teens, her and her sisters. So, you know, they were always at like the Savoy or, you know, like any like nightclub. So like, I, and just to think about my grandmother, who was like this little old lady who was pretty much a party girl um, for a good chunk of her youth um, was just odd to me. But like, yeah, I mean, the same things that like we would do when we're, you know, teens or in our 20s. 
everybody, every generation does that. So you'd be surprised. (laughs) So listen to some of the stories because I found things people told me in Atlantic City so apt absolutely amusing and not the, I've noticed just in maybe the last decade or so, a recent interest in more writing, beach-related writing, storylines and and TV shows. A lot of that stuff is made up, but what I like about what I have written and now I'm going book to script is you can't make up the stuff these people told me. It, it's the truth. It's the truth hearing about Bobby Green, who's in the book as a child, who's now a retired fireman, telling me how he and his boys would sit on top of buildings and just kind of look at the crowds over at Chicken Bone Beach in their neighborhood. He'd tell me how he'd borrow his mother's convertible so he could ride by the, you know, the beachy touristy area so girls would be impressed. You know how the high school girls in the neighborhood would not speak to the boys in the summertime because what were they doing in the summer? They were checking out all the visiting tourist girls and like not, you know, and shunning them to the side or... Someone was telling me how they would be knocking on the club door like, can you go get my mom and dad? You know, yeah, tell them to come home. (laughs) Just great stories. Like there was a famous drummer in Atlantic City who talked about how before he would go to school, he'd go to he'd go down to the beach for horseback riding lessons. You don't hear those kind of stories coming from African Americans living near a beach because in America, the majority of African Americans did not own beach front property and were not allowed to. And we're not allowed to. When we begin to talk about the conversation of reparations in America now, we need to be inclusive of the fact that we were not permitted to purchase very much beachfront property all around America in all waters. Do you feel like you kind of lived vicariously through the people that you spoke to for your research? Every single day. If you got to go back to prime chicken bone beach era, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd be a singer in a nightclub or maybe even a showgirl outside of writing. I come from a family of entertainers, which makes this all so, I don't know, melancholy that at some point in my life, and I talk more about it now because I reflect more on it. My history as a person on this planet comes from being involved in a family that sings and dances and acts. I have a great uncle who actually performed jazz at Chicken Bone Beach and Um, There was a time in my life where I wanted to be professional recording artist. I wasn't thinking about business or writing or any of this. I gave it a go a couple of times. I have two independent CDs out right now that are jazz and R&B. But even before that, I moved to New York to try to get a record deal when back in the days where, you know, there was an A&R at a record label. I mean, it's all very different since the Internet. But because that is my history, I've been singing in nightclub, singing jazz. Uh, with a big fat flower on the side of my head somewhere, I'm sure. Without a question of a doubt. And I'd have been in those pictures too, because I'm a beach girl. I always believed I would write one day, but I really laughed to myself that it ended up being about beaches because I always loved beaches, even though I grew up in the Midwest. I always loved water. I always wanted, to, I still do want to be near it. And my happiest, am I happiest at the beach or at my garden most of the time? I remember growing up watching 
old black and white beach movies as a kid with Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello thinking, man, I would love to be growing up near a beach like these kids. How cool is that? And I'd be right in front of the TV doing the twist. I was like six, seven years old. And I remember my first bikini. I lived in inner city Cleveland. I didn't live anywhere near some water at all. But the elementary school down the street from me erected a pool in the in the parking lot for the summer. My mom was one of those. My, my parents were divorced. My mom was one of those people that she took advantage of programs. Like they're giving free swim lessons down the street. You're going. I'm happy to go. I get my first swimsuit. And um, my grandmother uh, was a lifeguard and uh, which I almost found shocking. (laughs) So she'd always be trying to do water related stuff with us. And I just remember, I remember the first time I saw the ocean and I was like, this is just, it just did something to me. Yeah. I kind of been a beachy girl too. So yeah. Nightclub singer. And have you yourself spent like, um, I mean, obviously you spent time in Atlantic City, you know, researching this, but did you go to Atlantic City before that? Or was this like your, your only, you know, like your first reason to kind of go and check it out? Yeah, I don't believe I visited Atlantic City before I researched the book. I probably went to 25 beaches before I got to Atlantic City. And maybe I just, because I didn't know the great history you know, I wasn't really like rushing to go, you know, I've been there quite a bit now. Nope. Never had gone to Atlantic City, never had gone to their beaches, did not know I had an aunt there that owned a restaurant, did not know my great uncle um, had a history of uh, performing there. Didn't know any of that. So then you're pleasantly surprised and amazed when you actually found all of that out. I'm sure you just... I think in life, there are no accidents. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes... You know, we're so busy living our everyday life that we don't take the time to press the rewind button of the story of ourselves and see how things sort of come together. What do you want people to know most about Chicken Bone Beach? I think I said it mostly at the end of the book. I want people in the world to know American history. I want them to hear great untold stories about what has made this country who it is today. And in particular about segregated beaches, because it's such an unexposed uh, fragment of history in America. In particular, Chicken Bone Beach, they're kind of, uh, I want to say to the world, Here's an example that you just don't hear about quite often in in social studies and American studies and on the news because it ain't mainstream. But there was a black community in America who built themselves up from scratch. They were resilient in a time of very uh, sensitive racial climate in America. And despite all that, they were thriving wasn't a perfect situation. So if you give any group of people of any background or any color, whatever kind of group you want, if you give them the opportunity to have the same opportunities that you give to everybody, yes, they can succeed. And these people showed that at a time where there were so many barriers overall for Black Americans in America because of racism, because of Jim Crow laws. These people of color were any less intelligent than any other race of people. Because here's an example. 
of a group of people who were told you can't use not one service on the south side of Atlantic City. I don't know how you're going to get health care. I don't know how you guys are going to save money, but you can't use anything of ours. But you can do whatever you want over there in your little corner of the sky. And they did it. And they did the damn thing. Yes, they did. They were self-reliant and self-sustained. They had a woman who became a millionaire in their community and gave back. And that's what I want people to know. Give everybody, give every human being the opportunity to succeed. Stand out of their way and they will. And guess what? It doesn't subtract not one dime or opportunity from their neighbor. That's what I want people to know. That's what we got to do around here. Or we're going to keep being this divided, very embarrassing nation that we are seeing right now today. And the world is watching this. And the smart people, the smart leaders in other nations, they see this pathetic division as a weakness on our part and an opportunity to strengthen their society and create new alliances. We have to change things up. We really do. Nothing's going to change. We're going to repeat the same cycles. It's Nothing's going to get any better unless things actually change. We must make choices for the greater good of all or we hurt ourselves in the process. And I said some of the things I said because historically, what has been said about the African-American race, all lies, but it was said, you know, that our brains, our skulls are different. We're not as smart. We're not as this. We're not. No, if you give us the same opportunities to succeed, we can. Yes, and there is nothing less about those people who lived in Chick at Chicken Bone Beach than any other American. Our biggest race will be the mixed race in America. That's going to be our biggest. And then what are we fighting about? Yeah, there's and nothing then, at that point. <laughs> what are yeah. we doing? And generationally, every generation seems to care less about yeah. gender or color than baby boomers and older. And you all are a diminishing since by way of census population, and they're the majority. I'm counting on my kid and their kids and their kids' kids to create a world that is so much more inclusive of so many different facets of society. I'm sure you can tell by my a, a lot of what I have said that more matters to me than one little beach in America. But it sparked my view of community, racism in America, a number of things. If you look at American history, especially as it pertains to slavery and racism and Jim Crow laws in America, you find much more pleasant stories in our northern history. Quakers helped to educate slaves. Vermont was officially the first state to make slavery against the law. You don't hear those kind of stories coming out of Tennessee and Alabama and Florida and Texas and those places at all. Chicken Bone Beach is not the only beach in history, right? That's been like this. What's next for you? What are some of your projects that are coming up? I'm actually writing about other segregated beaches in America. I got my hands full. 
because that information isn't so readily available. One of my son's previous social studies teachers allowed me to discuss my books in his class. And I, I love his introduction when um, he introduced, you know, me talking about the books. He says, why do you think there's not that much Black history in like our classes or in history in general? And I've heard other historians say this too, but differently. You know, the history writing goes to the victor of the elite of the economy of that time, meaning white men in the 1900s were not thinking about writing about great contributions of Black history in America. Didn't matter to them. So many stories about um, segregated beaches that I could only learn by way of talking to other African-Americans and them telling me about beaches. So people have told me about beaches and then I kind of got to go out there and try to find whatever I can. So that's challenging in and of itself. And I may not find all of them by the time I decide to publish, but that's okay. There's plenty of Black people out there telling me, you left mine out. You know, I lived in, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi, and there was a little beach we went to. Um, so I love that people today are helping me write their story, if you will, because it is their story. Um, but it's also um, <clears throat> knowledge and history that makes for a better and brighter future for the next generation of people. And so that's a, a bigger goal too. I, like you said, what did I want most from people to get from Chicken Bone Beach? But what I want people to get too is the history of segregated beaches in America to learn to, to do things differently. Yeah, thank you all for tuning in and listening to a wonderful podcast that wants to uh, share with the world what you don't know that's fascinating and a part of the fabric of our history. But of course, I love fans and followers. I'm a digital creator. I need you. I'm Cheryl W. Brooks on every social platform out. IG, Twitter, TikTok, wherever the people are, I'm going. And my website is Cheryl-W-Brooks. I have five books out my most recent, When I Look Into the Sea, is available. It's for children. I think it makes a great bedtime story. And I think you can be a big kid and like it, too. So if you follow me, you'll see uh, what I'm up to. And I would love if you would. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for, you know, doing the research getting the information out there and for speaking with us because this is, like you said, just absolutely important that people know. People in America just globally know about the history. Well, thank you ladies for having me. I appreciate it. I love when um, I love when I attract yeah, people who want to talk to me and help spread the, spread the, spread the history. Thank you for doing this. We would like to thank Cheryl for joining us today on the podcast and telling us all about the history of Atlantic City, especially the history of Chicken Bone Beach. She put her heart and soul into researching the history. Her book is called Chicken Bone Beach, a pictorial history of Atlantic City's Missouri Avenue Beach. To get the book and to read more about Chicken Bone Beach, 
check out the episode's show notes on our website. We'll have links to this book and other books by Cheryl, as well as her social media. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even Good Pods. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and check out our website for more information about all of our episodes, including this one. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time.